Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, three. two, three. Okay. Hello. Hello, hello. So this week we are asking, who are Ireland's elites? And to answer that question, I visited a castle in Dublin, one that still has a family living in it, whose ancestors have been there for 800 years almost. Let's go over to Naomi in Hoth Castle. I'm walking up to the entrance of Hoth Castle. I can see there are some family crests up on the walls but they're so worn away that it's it's hard to make out what they say. But there's no need to really because only one family has ever lived here. Today, the current heir has agreed to meet me and show me around inside the castle. Uh, my name's Julian Gateshead St. Lawrence and um, uh, my family own uh, his castle. So that big heavy door opens and this is what you see. An entrance hall filled with heavy wooden furniture and portraits on the walls of earls and lords of Hoth going back generations. There are some rich rugs on the floor, there are antlers on the walls, and there's an enormous stone fireplace. Can you tell me, how long have your family been living in this residence? Um, My family came from uh, Normandy in 1177, and they came here in an expedition that was led by John de Courcy. It's supposed to be in a battle here against the incumbent um, population. They won the battle, and they've been here ever since. So just to um, to make it clear, um, when you're talking about the land and the house, what does it actually consist of? Uh, well, we, we own, I suppose, so, somewhere around 650 acres. Um, uh, that includes... Um, Island's Eye, which is ours. That's the island just outside Hoth Harbour. Yes. An island, two golf courses, and a lot of the wild, rugged moorland that covers Hoth Head, the peninsula that forms the northern arm of Dublin Bay. But the reason I'm here is because the heydays are over for castles like this. The 20th century disrupted the conditions that allowed them and the elite families that lived in them to prosper. Keeping the place going is a challenge. It's a plight that mirrors that of other old families in other countries, but in Ireland it's perhaps slightly different. People don't have happy associations with big old houses here. There isn't really a tradition of visiting them. So the Gaysford St. Lawrence's have been experimenting. They run a cookery school out of its cavernous kitchens. And they're inviting people, like me, into the castle to show them around. This is the um, drawing room. Who's this who we see up in the in the portrait here? Uh, that's the um, third L. Yeah, this is the um, uh, library. Uh, and, um, this is such a beautiful room. I think this one is my favourite. Room after room revealed more treasures. An enormous portrait of the satirist Jonathan Swift occupied a custom-sized alcove in the dining room. The man himself had once been a regular visitor. As Julian took me through the rooms, it was like peeling back layers of time. One stairway led us down into a lower level filled with storage rooms and the detritus of centuries. Thick wooden beams stretched above us, giving away that this floor was once the original medieval castle hall. Uh, room's only been painted once since um, uh, it was built in uh, the 1730s. The, because of the intricate gilt on the walls, the walls used to be washed down. And then by the 1970s, they got to be rather um, thin. And my parents decided to um, have the room repainted. And they um, 
had uh, quite a lot of misgivings about uh, employing the only man they discovered in Dublin who could actually do a proper job of the whole thing. The room was uh, repainted in 1973 by Castle Goulding, who was then head of the official IRA. So the head of the official IRA gilded this room? Well, he didn't gild it. No, he just he, he painted in between the gilding and, and le- left, the, um, left the gilt. I had been told a myth about this castle when I was growing up. I was told that Gronuel, Grace O'Malley, the pirate queen of Connacht, had knocked on the door of the castle once and had been refused. Furious at this breach in the ancient laws of hospitality, the story goes, Gronuel kidnapped the castle's young heir and only returned him after extracting a promise from the Lord Hoth that every night a place would be set at the table ready for the unexpected guest. I walked into the dining room, and there it was. At the head of the enormous wooden table, a single place was set. When I was growing up here, the, um, uh, the extra place was, um, was laid at um, every, meal, every meal it was there. And I was told about the tradition which um, continues on absolutely fascinating I would have been told that story when I was growing up but I thought it must be an urban myth <laughs> I never realised I would come inside Hoth Castle and find the place uh, set waiting for, for Grony Whale <laughs> the thought crossed my mind at times that this house was like a museum but in a way it was something different perhaps something more rare All the objects were in their original context. It's all here. Nothing has really been sold. It's one unified collection that stretches back centuries. And amid it all, the casual touches of informality, the wear and the clutter of a home, the ashtray perched among scattered parchments and piles of leather volumes in the library. And of course it was Julian, the owner, the occupier, the heir to it all, who was showing me around. At one point... Footsteps echoed in the distance, and Julian's elderly father appeared from a staircase leading into the room. Hello. They began talking about some party that was supposed to happen in Kildare. Have you been asked by Grattan to call Sylvia to his party? No. Is he having a party? What stuck out to me was that surname. De Courcy. That's the same surname as the knight, John de Courcy, that Julian had told me led the expedition that first brought his ancestors to Hoth in 1177. 800 years have passed. The British Empire has come and gone. But St. Lawrence's and de Courcy's are still hanging out. But it's a world that's fading away. Certainly a number of the houses that I visited in my youth are um, now a shadow of what they previously were or converted into um, hotels or or, or similar. I was educated in in England. I went to Ampleforth, which is a Catholic public school, Uh, the same one as my father went. There were uh, 70 Irish boys in a school of 400. Uh, when I started there, there were 30 in a school of 600, and when I left, there were 20. Uh, when I um, thought about where I might send my um, son to school, uh, that was um, done at three. So I think that that, um, that world still exists to some extent, but it's fast, um, it's fast fading away, basically. What do you think the stereotype that people have of big houses like this is? I think that there's a, an association with the years of the, uh, the famine and um, a, an association of these houses with a, um, an imported Protestant ruling class. And would you consider your family an import? Uh, well, we've been here since 1177. We've been here longer before the death of Elizabeth I than, than since. So um, we wouldn't. Uh, one of my Elizabethan ancestors complained that 
in uh, England he was considered to be an Irishman and in Ireland he was considered to be an Englishman uh, and that was um, 400 years ago and uh, something of that still, um, still remains. That was fascinating to hear, Naomi. And I think even for people who live in Ireland, this is a really hidden part of the country that people very seldom get to see. Absolutely. It is an unappreciated, I think, a treasure in many ways. I mean, just walking around Hoth Castle, it is it was incredible to see what was there. It was better than many, many museums that I've been in. So unvisited and un, un, not, not that known about, you know. Mm. You can almost tell the history of Ireland through the history of this huh. one family. Sure. They've, they've had fairly prominent positions throughout the centuries. C- can we just take a moment to appreciate Julian Gaysford St. Lawrence's name? <laughs> <laughs> good yeah. name. Yeah, good uh, okay, name. so the St. Lawrence part, right? The Go reason on. why it's called that is because they, his ancestor won a battle in 1170 uh-huh. on the feast day of St. Lawrence, and that's why they're called that. Oh, yeah. right. But of course. All that long time ago. And so in the castle, they have this sword, right, that's hanging on the wall. And it was reputed to be the Sword of Hoth, supposed to be the same sword with which this ancestor won this battle and was granted all these lands, right? In fact, they got it carbon dated and it's only, only 500 years old. Ah, well, uh, come on. (laughs) So it can't be the same one, but it's still pretty old. (laughs) I, for one, am disappointed. Tim, who were the Normans? Right, okay, so the Normans are actually known in uh, Irish historiography a lot as the Old English because, of course, Mm. they came over uh, to Ireland from England. Uh, But this is a kind of misleading name because they probably would have uh, spoken French at the time back in the Middle Ages. They acted as kind of feudal elite in Ireland right up until the Cromwellian conquest. Right, okay, and I suppose one of the defining factors of this group, right, which was uh, they became assimilated kind of quickly into Gaelic society the old Gaelic society of that time. I've heard this phrase used about them that they were more Irish than the Irish themselves. It was often just a matter that these old English elites did what was strategically clever to do and they married into the native Gaelic ruling dynasties. Okay. You know, a, lo- a lot of them after one or two generations changed their names to Gaelic names which you could imagine anyone doing after they live in a country for mm. a generation. Uh, so this was a, a huge problem the whole time, really, for, for the British who wanted to to take control of Ireland, especially during the tu- Tudor era, which is when uh, they were putting those plantations uh, in the north of Ireland. If you want to hear more about that, you can listen back to, to our first episode on the border. Because successive waves of these colonists kept assimilating into Irish culture. Oh, right. So they would lose them. They would go yeah, native. They, they went native. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they went native. There, there was a whole historical process, Hibernioris Hibernus Ipsis, which means quite simply, like you said, uh, that the medieval elite became more Irish than the Irish themselves and actually started turning against England with uh, the native Gaelic uh, lords. Uh, but the important thing, I think, to consider about those uh, first Norman elites was that they imported a, a feudal style template into Ireland that hadn't been there before. So it was possible to to have a kind of equivalent elite group in Ireland as it was in Britain, okay. uh, even if um, the Irish ones adopted Gaelic customs. Okay. Um, but these they were different to the later arrivals, right, who were granted land after the Cromwellian invasion. Right, yeah, indeed. So those old English really saw themselves as the, as the quote-unquote real elite of Ireland for a long time. Um, but a lot of them were actually disempowered after Cromwell's invasion. And this is in the mid-17th century because, of course, they were Catholics. And Cromwell invasion was a very anti-Catholic phenomenon, Hmm. um, to to put it mildly. (laughs) (laughs) The army of hell, I believe, is how he saw Catholics. Oh my God. Um, But (laughs) uh, it's it's really important to understand the sheer scale of Cromwell's invasion, you know, in a space of a few years, mostly using um, strategies of of crop burning and mass starvation. He had seized about three quarters of Catholic Irish land. And by the time he left, only about 20% of land in Ireland was uh, held by Catholics, mostly in, in Connacht. That there's a famous phrase that he said to Heller to Connacht and the rest of the land had been taken over by this tiny colonial elite who were mostly Protestant and by the end of the 18th century that tiny colonial elite these new settlers owned something like 90% of land on the island okay so this small group who had a different religion owned like 90% of the land and, that, and they, were, they were at the top of the social scale and they more or less held all of the economic and political power
power. Yeah, right. And they're often known as the Protestant descendancy, which might be a bit misleading because a lot of the old Catholic elite just threw in their lot with them. Um, and there were Catholic landowners among them as well, which explains Julian Gaysford St. Lawrence, uh, you know, still being uh, the master of his estate today. Uh, even some Gaelic chieftains were integrated into this group as well. Right. Julian actually emphasised that, well, he said his family had retained what they had essentially by th- being kind of subtle and diplomatic and not obviously mm. taking one side or another too often and compromising. So he told me that, for example, sons, you know, tended to marry Catholic women, apparently, and the daughters would be huh. raised Catholic and the sons would be raised Protestant. Hmm. It does make sense if you look at the property laws. Uh, the, the Protestant ascendancy did get a lot of their power by virtue of their religion. Uh, for about 200 years after Cromwell, they benefited from these famous sectarian penal laws, which we've mentioned a few times on the podcast already because they explain a lot of the social divisions in Ireland. And those penal laws gave them enormous advantages in matters of inheritance and in land rights, which pretty much ensured that they always maintained the upper hand and a kind of monopoly of power uh, on the island. And of course, there's a distinction between the Protestants uh, who had this power in the southern part of Ireland and those who are in what's now Northern Ireland, right? Yeah, sure. Like the Protestants in the north, who we talked about again in in the first and second episode, uh, they had come much earlier than the post-Cromwellian settlers. And they were a different kind of Protestant. They were dissenters, which means that they weren't part of the official state religion. And that also meant that in Ireland and in England at the time, they didn't have full civil rights either under the penal laws. They were a good bit better off than the Catholic majority, mind you. And we're talking about, about seven of the country when we talk about the Catholic majority in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, The Catholic majority were denied rights across the whole board of public life. Uh, It was mostly to ensure that they couldn't mount a rebellion against the colonial elite. Uh, And right up until 1829, when a lot of those penal laws were were repealed, which is very late if you think about it, um, Catholics were restricted in their rights to education, to be represented in Parliament, to adopt children, you know, which is uh, pretty awful. You can imagine if your sister died, you you couldn't adopt her child, you'd have to give it to a Protestant to inherit land, to hold arms, or even to be represented in in the law. So all of these uh, restrictions, they were pretty variable over the years, but in in their entirety, they set up this really stark dichotomy between a massive, disenfranchised, and really squalidly poor Catholic majority and a tiny minority. We're talking a few thousand people of Protestant elites who had their own parliament in Dublin and more or less controlled all walks of life uh, in Ireland. A lot of this history actually can be read in the architecture of Ireland, like Georgian Dublin, for example, you know. The Protestant ascendancy, I understand, they more or less built a new city over medieval Dublin with these kind of Mm. austere, huge mansions. I've actually been inside one of them, you know, on Henrietta Street in Dublin, which is one of the more preserved Georgian streets. And inside they Mm. are just palaces, just the enormous scale of them, the height of the ceilings, like just the money that they would have taken to just to heat is incredible. They must have had so much wealth. For sure. Yeah. And and from the outside today, they don't look that impressive, but that's actually uh, on purpose. Uh, They're built uh, purposely to be extremely plain on the outside, and that's supposed to represent austere uh, Protestantism. Wow. You might compare them a little bit to uh, modern architecture in that it's the scale of the streetscape, really, that is um, one of the most impressive of things about them. Just these kilometer stretches of uniform houses. They were jaw-droppingly modern at the time. It's interesting what you say about the ornamentation. Of course, Dublin is so different from continental European cities like Paris or Rome. You know, the the most Mm. ornamentation that you'll get really around those houses is just a little bit of fancy glass around the doorway. And a really interesting facet of the ascendancy, they had this terrible inferiority complex. (laughs) People in London laughed at them for being provincial. And even worse, their own tenants kind of laughed at them too, because the myth of the old English, of the old elite, never really went away for the tenants. And when you read 18th century and 19th century literature, um, the the ascendancy are always being mocked as being just Cromwell soldiers. And people didn't really take them seriously on either side of the Irish Sea as as a real ancestral elite. Okay. Uh, So, I mean, a lot of people have seen George and Dublin as a response to that kind of uh, little man feeling um, because they build these huge projects like the Parliament House and College Green, which a lot of our listeners will have seen. It's the Bank of Ireland now. But at the time when it was built, this was the first purpose-built Parliament House in the world. Just House of Parliament. For comparison, in London... 
uh, the Parliament in Westminster was working out the back of a of an old church. <laughs> uh, that's actually why the Parliament in London is still shaped like a like a church. Oh, I didn't know that. that. But when the Ascendancy built this building, it was ten times more grand than what they had in London, and it seemed really inappropriate and really ostentatious and really silly, and everyone laughed at them about that. Okay. <laughs> Um, I suppose another symbol of this era, I suppose, is what's called the big house. And it's always capitalized, mm. the big house. So these are literally large houses, often on the edges of towns now, where the landowner and his family would have lived. And they sort of loom large as well in Irish literature. Like, Tim, doesn't your own family have a complex history that overlaps with the big house? Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, actually. I, I try to squeeze it out of my family every time I get hold of <laughs> one of them. Uh, but they don't find it as interesting as me, so it's, uh, it's hard to get them to spill the beans. So so both my great-grandparents were servants in one of these big houses. Okay. Quite a big one, actually, in County Mayo. Uh, so uh, to kind of get a feel for the place, I actually went to the house a few weeks ago where they lived to find out more about that world. Okay, let's hear from that report. In the dear dead days beyond recall, when on the world the mist began to fall. I'm walking here just along the road uh, leading to Bloomfield House in County Mayo, or I suppose what's left of Bloomfield, uh, because like so many of these Irish big houses, this one was mysteriously burnt down in the years following independence. Uh, what I'm looking at now is more or less a massive grey ruin. It's mostly covered with ivy, and you can just see the high-walled gardens and stable buildings, which are really very extensive. Uh, from the looks of it, it was quite an impressive estate once upon a time. It's one of those uh, typical drizzly days that you get in uh, in the west of Ireland, uh, what, what we call a soft day, and it really does look uh, uh, something spectacular. Uh, it was originally built in 1776. This was the seat of the Anglo-Irish Rutledge family, and they owned loads of land around in this area, actually. Uh, but more importantly, most importantly, this is where my own great-grandmother lived and worked as a housekeeper uh, in the early 20th century. Now, I I'm holding one of the sole surviving photos of her, uh, which can be dated to around 1906, and uh, she's wearing a very respectable Edwardian attire. Uh, she's standing beside her husband, that's my great-grandfather. He actually came over from England, he had been shipped over to work as a gamekeeper in another big house a few miles away, and that wasn't very unusual actually. Lots of the Ascendancy families preferred to import English servants uh, instead of hiring locals. Uh, just down the road from this house there is a neat little line of uh, slate-roofed cottages. Um, still there, they're still being lived in, and they were actually built originally to house uh, English servants like uh, my great-grandfather. Here in the photo is my grandmother as a baby, and she's she's actually still instantly recognisable, even though she must be uh, less than a year old. Uh, she's all bundled up in white lace on her mother's knee, and beside her, uh, her older brother is about three years old, and he's uh, in the arms of his father. Now, two things really fascinate me about this photo, especially standing here in front of the house. First of all, it looks very likely that this photo was taken somewhere out the back of this burnt-out mansion in front of me. The door frame that they're standing at has some very finely cut stone, and it certainly isn't their, their cottage, uh, which, is, which is not far from here. Secondly, there is my grandmother's uh, brother. That's the, the pensive-looking three-year-old there in my great-grandfather's arms. This is pretty fascinating because by the time that boy reached young adulthood, he had joined up with what was known as the Old IRA in this region, and that is to say the original guerrilla army of the rebel movement during the War of Independence and the Civil War. Uh, he, he was killed, actually, in an ambush not far from here uh, when he was 17 years old in 1922, and he became a bit of a local martyr. He was given full, a full IRA military funeral, and uh, he was paraded through the local town, uh, Ballinrobe. In my grandparents' cottage, which is only a few minutes away, you can almost see it from here, uh, they used to sing songs about him. He was commemorated even in ballads. I have an old uh, recording somewhere at home that I'll, I'll dig up and see if I can play it on the podcast. He won the soldier of the famous IRA. That host of nightly warriors who has thrilled the world today. With deeds of Irish valor, of chivalry and renown. When fighting Ireland's forces against the forces on the ground. 
Just two years after my grandmother's brother was shot dead by British forces, Bloomfield House would burn to the ground. And I can't help wondering, who did it? Was it an accident? Could it have been a member of my own family? A servant lighting the single match that burned down their master's house? What experiences drove my great-grandparents, one of whom was English, to join up with an anti-British rebel movement? Were they, in some respects, spies in that house? What exactly happened between them and their employers? Just like Bloomfield, hundreds of these houses were burnt down during the War of Independence, and hundreds more after the foundation of the Free State. Lots of others simply fell into dereliction. They skulk now on the outskirts of practically every town and village, and they always seem somehow embarrassed. Despite their name, some weren't particularly big at all. In fact, some aren't much bigger than a modest uh, suburban villa. The reality of life in a country house, in Britain as well as Ireland, was of course very different from the rosy, almost propagandistic image of a big, happy family that you might pick up from period dramas like Downton Abbey. Servants would, to be sure, have considered themselves lucky to have a job in a big house, but they were not part of the family in any sense. When you read what the upper orders thought about them, it quickly becomes clear that they were considered something closer to a different species. Right into the 20th century, when a member of the family encountered servants in the hallway, it was not unusual for the servant to be obliged to face against the wall, to make themselves part of the furniture, not to offend anyone's eyes with their very existence. When a servant got old or infirm, there was no retirement scheme. After a lifetime of service, they were very often just thrown out into the street. All of this paled in comparison with the dire situation in Ireland, though. Lots of historians have tried to rehabilitate the Irish ascendancy's villainous reputation over the last few decades, but if you ask me, they've always faced an uphill battle. By the 18th century, the ascendancy were renowned all over Europe for their brutal tyranny over their Irish tenants, who, it might be remembered, mostly spoke a different language, practised a despised religion, and had little or no recourse in the law or in Parliament. The penal laws had ensured such a clear distinction between the privileged Protestant elite and the disenfranchised Catholic majority that corruption and abuse of power was widespread and constant in the big house. A considerable number of landlords in Ireland were English-born and had hardly set foot in their ancestral estates. When Sir William Pope tried to choose an Irish title back in 1628, he remarked, I am certain there are such towns as Lucan and Granard, but I cannot find it on a map. If it is possible, we will change Granard for a whole county. Sir William's wish was granted. He became the Earl of County Down. This toxic relationship fostered a deep feeling of resentment within and without the walls of the Irish estate. The ascendancy novelist Mariah Edgeworth recalled in her diaries the moment that Republican rebels began to advance towards her big house during the 1798 rebellion and seeing with horror the flashes of joy in the faces of her servants. I suppose that goes to explain why so many families had their closest staff imported from England. In the 19th century, ascendancy tyranny was swapped for appalling negligence. After the Act of Union, which saw the colonial Dublin Parliament abolished, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the landed ascendancy abandoned their big houses in Ireland and moved to the British capital. In British tradition, the whole idea of a local landlord was that he be a kind of neighbourhood patriarch, improving the land and looking after the day-to-day -day concerns of the tenants. In Ireland, the big houses and their tenants were increasingly given over to land agents and middlemen who hiked rents relentlessly in the pursuit of further and further profits. It was a disastrous recipe when the impoverished masses of Ireland were already heading straight towards the greatest calamity of mass starvation the island has ever or had ever witnessed. And no matter how small these big houses were, they were palaces in comparison to the dwellings of the Catholic majority. If you look at pre-famine maps, you'll see these dwellings everywhere, little clusters of black rectangles covering every corner of the countryside. On the maps, they're not even qualified as houses, but rather cabins. Some of them would have resembled the typical Irish cottages that you might see on a postcard. Many others, however, were more like mud huts. Sometimes they were just holes in the ground. So it's no surprise that the big house was at the eye of the storm during the famine years. Inside the walls of great estates, life went on much as usual. Ballroom gatherings, lavish dinners, seasonal fruits from the walled orchards. Outside the periphery, entire villages were lying dead in the holes in the ground they called cabins and new holes in the ground were being prepared every day, mass graves which covered the countryside. 
The original driveway here at Bloomfield has been overgrown with grass. You can still see it in aerial photographs, uh, but on the ground level, the big ornamental gateway just opens into a green field. Uh, but you can be sure and certain that in the mid-19th century, there would have been starving possessions uh, staggering down that driveway uh, to the landlord's house. That was what was happening all over the country, and this area in County Mayo was one of the worst hit. Not far from here is another big house in Strokestown, which has been restored to its original state. And today it houses the National Famine Museum. Uh, and there you can, you can still see the enormous soup cauldrons the landlord set up. And that small mercy, mind you, didn't stop him from evicting 3,000 families in the worst year of the famine, 1847, since that land was much more profitable to a landlord as grazing for livestock. Later in that same year, the landlord of Strokestown was found murdered his family fled that Palladian mansion and they never returned again. The Big House was at the centre of one of another major episodes in the Irish independence movement and that was the land war. Not far from where I'm standing again is another smaller ascendancy house, Loch Mask House. The land agent, Charles Boycott, was looking after that estate. In the 1880s, when the famine was still fresh in people's minds, under the guidance of nationalist leaders, um, Charles Boycott's tenants refused to pay him a single penny unless he stopped imposing abusive and unreasonable rates on them. I think what is most emblematic of that movement and that wave of hatred towards the landowning classes uh, is Charles Stuart Parnell's great speech to the tenants uh, around this area during the land war. Now, he was trying to convince them to ostracize people who took up the houses of evicted tenants, but the tenants actually took this even further and they started ostracizing the landlords themselves. This is what he tells them to do, and it's still electrifying, you know, a hundred years later. He says, You must shun him on the roadside when you meet him. You must shun him in the streets of the town. You must shun him in the shop. You must shun him in the fair green and in the marketplace. You must show your detestation of the crime he has committed. And that, it turns out, was the original boycott. The rain is coming down on me now, so I better get out of here because there isn't very much uh, shelter uh, as far as I can see. But uh, all of this and looking at the big house makes me think every time of a passage from the novel by Elizabeth Bowen, The Last September, which was published in 1929, just after Ireland's independence. It's a passage that has become iconic, really, uh, for the twilight of this big house culture in Ireland. Uh, there's a moment when uh, Elizabeth Bowen's main character walks up a hill and can see her own ancestral big house from above. And this is what she says. Far from here, their isolation became apparent. The house seemed to be pressing down low in apprehension, hiding its face as though it had her vision of where it was. It seemed to huddle its trees close in fright and amazement at the wide, light, lovely unloving country, the unwilling bosom whereon it was set. I just love when people's families' histories like overlap with the kind of history that you've read about it in, in books. It just brings it alive. And I love the story about the origin of the word boycott as well. I think that, you know, that should be more widely known. <laughs> sure. I, I think this history, like it, it, it kind of explains a lot about how class works in Ireland today. So, mm, sure. okay, from yeah. what I remember, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what really happened mm. to disrupt this whole system was the land war in the 1880s. So mm. tenants essentially refused to pay their rent until their landlord sold them the plot of land that they were renting. Right, yeah. In a nutshell, uh, that's that's more or less how it worked. And they had to sell the land for a, a standard price, you know, which was, of course, a pretty low, uh, low price. It, it was a genius move, and it was based on industrial striking culture that was happening in the UK at mm. the time. 
it's essentially a strike, right? A boycott is just a strike. Uh, it's a rent strike. Uh, and it was all orchestrated by two men, um, one of whom, Charles Stuart Parnell, who I mentioned in that report, he was a, a, a nationalist ascendancy landlord hmm. himself, so he's a curious figure. And another guy who's just totally different, uh, Michael Davitt, who was a very working class Irish immigrant uh, in Britain, who had his arm chopped off by a machine when he lived in Britain, mm-hmm. actually, and who was trying to import socialist striking culture to Ireland. Okay, and I think it was more successful in some places than others, right? But essentially, at the end mm-hmm. of it, you ended up with all of these former tenants who now owned their own small plot of land, and they became little landlords in their own right, right? So they, they had capital, mm-hmm. something to pass on. Um, I think this ultimately destroyed David's hope of importing socialism, really, because it's having that capital and that stake really separated the kind of agricultural poor in Ireland from the industrial working class in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. It was much more uh, Parnell's vision of what he wanted to happen. And what you really end up with are all these, I suppose, you know, these like micro-capitalists with uh, (laughs) one or two acres, but they own their one or two acres. And they're extremely attached, of course, after the land war, uh, to this idea of private property. Uh, That said, it's important to note that the farmers didn't really become any richer material But, like you say, now they had capital and they were also free from this endemic mismanagement that had really characterised ascendancy culture. Okay, so what's essentially created is this huge, fairly poor rural middle class in Ireland, right? And kind of... Mm. Um, at the same time the nation is being born that's really anchored into these ideas of Catholic respectability and Irish nationalism. Yeah, largely so, absolutely. So, for instance, my grandparents, who I talked about in the report, you know, they had 13 children in a really small four-roomed house. That's seven kids in one room, seven kids in the other room, the parents in the third, and and a kitchen. (laughs) But um, they wouldn't have considered themselves working class ever, you know. More than that, they were the bread and butter of the nation. It was it was families just like them that really characterised the, the post-independence population in Ireland. After this huge upheaval, this massive redistribution of property ownership and a new nation being born, what, what happened to the big house elites during that period? Right, well, there, there's an easy kind of myth to feed into that they were driven out of Ireland like, like cattle, you know. And I suppose if you look at all those hundreds of houses that were burnt down after independence, to a degree, that is kind of true. Uh, but it, it doesn't explain the demise of the ascendancy really in Ireland. The truth of the matter is that just like the landed classes in the UK, in the beginning of the 20th century, the economic realities around the ascendancy just changed. And it made that kind of lifestyle pretty much unfeasible. And this was especially true, of course, then in Ireland with the War of Independence and the economic coups of the land war. You know, they didn't really didn't help on that. Right. Front. A lot of Protestants left in general, actually, which you can see quite clearly if you look at a census from that time. Mm. A lot of the ascendancy, though, we have to remember, were really thrilled about the new state. I mean, well, we, we can't leave out people like W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory, um, who were part of the Ascendancy too, and they were huge figures in the nationalist literary scene. Mm. You know, they imagined in a certain extent that they would become some kind of new intellectual aristocracy in an independent Ireland. And uh, them, like the others, the Free State wasn't necessarily hostile towards them. The Shannad, which is the upper house of the Irish government, it was more or less kind of modelled to accommodate uh, old ascendancy lords, the people who had been running things already. It was kind of like a House of Lords equivalent, actually, except, you know, democratic. Except for that old thing. Um, Actually, that was something that Julian mentioned. He said that his family historically had tended to um, be sympathetic to Irish nationalists. But the the thing was, though, they were imagining a different sort of Ireland. Maybe Mm. not Irish, Irish nationalism so much as home rule. And they thought that they could be sort of bigger fish in a smaller pond, he said, you know, and throw their weight about a bit more. For sure, yeah. And, like, and the Ascendancy wanted this at several points during history. There was a big um, push for Irish independence at the end of the 18th century as well with uh, what was called Grattan's Parliament. Uh, but h- what he wanted was exactly what you, you're saying. He wanted an Ireland for the Ascendancy. He had no intention of helping out the 75% squalidly poor Catholic majority. And that was what the Ascendancy wanted a lot throughout history. And it was no different after independence than before. Mm. I, th- I think, you know, what 
came through when I was speaking to to Julian that I don't think people realize so much is that their world didn't actually go away to a large extent it actually remained in Ireland in a slow kind of decline Um, but it remained a lot of it centered around things like horses and horse racing so there are families like them who were living in their same old houses um, in Ireland and of course in England it's this huge cliche that these old aristocratic families can't afford to heat their houses anymore and in Ireland it's kind of even more extreme because the tactics that are, exist in places like England to to keep up the house, which is essentially to open it up to the public as a kind of museum, um, that doesn't really work in Ireland because there's this whole sure. history of complex and negative kind of public attitudes towards those big houses. And, um, you know, they're a symbol for many people of a history of oppression and sadness. Julian is on the board of the Irish Historic Houses Association, which is a lobby group of uh, owners of such castles and old houses like the ones he lives in and they push for them to to be able to be retained and kept up in the way that they are now as important cultural and historical treasures. He told me that he was annoyed at the decision of the Irish Tourist Board to market historic houses in combination with the history of the famine. So you were telling me that the owners of the big houses in Ireland weren't delighted with the line of marketing that was taken. Well, I'm chairman of the Irish Historic Houses Association and we have about 160 members who own historic houses in the state of varying sizes. In uh, the launch of Ireland's Ancient East by Fulcher Ireland, we weren't in fact consulted about Fulcher Ireland decided to um, market Irish houses under the heading of big houses and hard times and to contrast the larger houses with the eras of um, famine and um, poverty and eviction. We have been um, trying to um, convince Fulcher Ireland that that is not the way that um, houses of this nature should be marketed. It is a perpetuation of um, a version of history which um, has led to the neglect of these houses in the past. An interpretation of history. Do you have a different interpretation of history? Well, the fact is that uh, if you look at uh, Europe as a whole, there were uh, substantial gaps in between um, in levels of wealth between the, the wealthy and the um, poorer levels of society. And the, the problem encountered by the Irish populace as a whole were um, very similar to those encountered elsewhere in, uh, in Europe. Where there was a dysfunction was in terms of the um, religious differences between the majority of the population and the um, Protestant ascendancy. And in the uh, economic um, catastrophes that occurred in the agricultural industry in the uh, 19th century. The famine. The famine, also a decline in commodity prices brought about by railways making um, produce more easy to transfer um, to move across across the continent. In Ireland as a whole, the majority of large houses were in fact built at times of prosperity when Ireland um, during the 18th century enjoyed a uh, agricultural boom. Right, well I mean I'd have to disagree with Julian on that one really. I, I can hardly look at a big house without thinking that it screams from every corner of its facade of the of the famine, especially when you look at these uh, walled gardens on the grounds, thinking that there was a, you know, there was a, a fortress of food in this, in such a sea of apocalyptic poverty, really, and people dying on the streets all around you uh, when you left the big house. Uh, another house, actually, that has kind of marketed itself a little bit uh, in conjunction with an idea of the famine is Westport House. It's it's open now to the public, and, and the family there historically did relatively quite a bit to help people. And they have some some letters on display from the lady of the house at the time. And, you know, like, it, it's all very sympathetic. But in one letter, she's writing to her middleman, first of all, you know, and this was half the problem with the famine, that middlemen were controlling the houses about what a terrible thing was happening in Ireland. And then later on, she gives some advice on how better to grow strawberries. And there's something, you know, deeply sinister about that, a total disconnect from the fact that people were starving to death everywhere 
in the country. Let's you know, I mean, remind our listeners that what two million people just vanished during the famine, a million across the sea and a million into the ground, you know, like a, a third of the population by the end of the whole thing had been reduced. So this isn't just some agricultural disaster. This was a disaster on a monumental scale. Yeah. And of course, the effects of it continue to kind of reverberate in Ireland today and have shaped Ireland to many respects. Of course, the population has never recovered to this day. This was something that um, the director, Patrick Cooney, mentioned to me when I spoke to him. Let's play an interview of that now. So essentially, Patrick Cooney spent about a decade infiltrating, I suppose, getting to know in depth the last remnants of this Anglo-Irish aristocracy who remain in their crumbling houses around Ireland. He made a documentary about it called Raj in the Rain, which is a real, really a must-watch. He told me, actually, that those who remain often have a slightly awkward relationship with history. My name is Patrick Cooney. I decided to go off and, without a commission, record these people's lives in as much detail as possible, which meant I had to spend uh, quite a lot of time with them. It wasn't weeks, it wasn't months, it was actually over a period of 10 years. Getting to know the people, getting their trust, getting to know the story and getting to know their lives and their lifestyle. And, as I said, how they fitted in to 21st century Ireland. And what did you find out about them? How would you describe them to someone who's kind of new to the subject? I always called them a lost tribe. And I felt a certain amount of affinity because I was born in London. And I'm of Irish ancestry. I came back to live in Ireland. I have a very English accent. And I fitted in, superficially, with the Anglo-Irish far more than I did with what you might be called the native Irish because most of the Anglo-Irish have very English accents. They're still schooled in England and most of their social circles are English. So who are they, these people? These would be the descendants of, I suppose, what you would call planters who'd been involved in the plantation of Ireland or settlers going back to Anglo-Norman times. They would have come in, they would have been, as they always said, we were a we acquired land or we were granted land. Essentially, the land that belonged to the native Irish was seized. This was a colonisation. And it was given to the favourites of whatever court there was at that time or whatever king there was at that time. And these people who now live here are the descendants of those court favourites. And they are, in many cases, they're as, they're as Irish as any other Irish person. But they have a very, very, and this came out in the film, a very conflicted uh, identity and and a strange myriad of allegiances. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Like, what's their outlook? Well, uh, one of the first questions I asked all of them, I asked them all the same questions. Uh, what nationality do you consider yourself? And the answers were, were, were very interesting. Some of them said Irish. One of them said um, Hiberno-Norman-Gaelic. And then one of them, uh, Jocelyn Gore Booth uh, from Sligo, said, it's very confusing. I am Irish, but I'm not. But I am English, but I'm not. And I could identify because in England, I have an English accent, but I've got an Irish name. And people would say, you're Irish. Over here in Ireland, I have an English accent and an Irish name. Irish people would say, you're English. So I, I had a little bit of affinity with them. But they are... I'm not, I'm not saying they, they walk around with a, a big wound in them saying we're not accepted here because I actually think uh, Irish people have, were very, very generous when we got our independence. This, there's a myth that the Anglo-Irish were burnt out and driven out. They were not. They were actually encouraged to stay to form the new state. The Shannard, which is the upper house of our Houses of Parliament, was created specifically for them and they were offered grants to restore their homes. That's extraordinary for a nation coming out of six years of revolution to actually ask the old order to stay. So what are their lives like day to day and what remains of the old society that they would have had? Can you just describe a little bit about what their houses are like and their lives are like? Well, as I always thought uh, it was going to be Downton Abbey and Brideshead revisited, the reality is most of them live in a very small portion of that large house, normally two or three rooms. Quite simply, those other rooms are showrooms, and they always were. 
you can't afford to heat those rooms 12 months a year without actually turning your house into a venue. And most of them, the younger generation, have accepted that and realised that if they do want to keep the, the family home, they're going to have to turn it into a venue and they are going to actually have to become event managers. And some of them are not suited for this. Most of them come from essentially privileged upbringing and there they are, they're having to invite everybody into their house and obviously get paid for it but they're opening up their homes to everybody and so it's a real turnaround and it's only the last two generations that have had that because up until the 1950s they were still clinging on to a way of life that they'd had for hundreds of years now it's totally different uh, and it's quite interesting that's what made the documentary interesting we showed the younger generation having to come to grips with the fact they were going to have to find out how were they going to actually pay to keep the lead on the roof. And these houses are not designed for the Irish climate. These are Italian palazzos. And that's why I called it the Raj in the rain. They were the Maharajas, but my God, they were in the rain. Something that I noted when I was speaking to Julian Gaysford St. Lawrence, who we might have heard from earlier, is that he, he did feel that the state should give him money to maintain his house because of just I suppose the rareness of it and the preciousness of the things that were in it um, and also he had he had um, quite negative feelings a uh, feeling of kind of not being appreciated fully appreciated or properly valued in in modern Ireland was that something that you came across I didn't know I can understand what he's saying but the reality is this is a republic and we fought on and off for 700 years to drive the British out of Ireland. And the reality is the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, whatever they choose to call themselves, are viewed very much as the old order. And the old order's day has gone. And in a society we live in where there's many pressures on the exchequer, how can you argue that you're going to fund some toff to live in a big house when we have hospital waiting lists? That's the reality. But... I did say to a number of people when they were asking me about the value of these houses, in many parts of Ireland, there is very little to draw tourists apart from the big house. And the big house that used to be closed off, used to be walled, have now in many respects become hubs, tourist hubs, creative hubs. And the very best of them are doing that. Friends of mine who I've retained from uh, my, my time making the film have taken over the estates and they're turning the outbuildings uh, into uh, creative zones. That's important because that involves the local people. It obviously brings in money. And it also, they realise that they are no longer Lord of the Manor. They can only stay in that house as long as the locals allow them to and as long as tourists come to visit. It's a great levelling out process for some of them. And obviously some of them have not coped with that very well. Others have. It's very, very difficult, I suppose, to look round your family home you've been 400 years and realise that actually the game's over and you're going to have to open the door and charge admission. Is there anything else that I haven't asked about oh, that you'd like to add? I would say, that, well, I am a Republican, so I was, I was uh, the right man to let in to do a film on these people. It was never going to be a cosy up. Uh, I think uh, I'm glad their day is done. I'm glad we live in a republic. But I think they have a part to play. Because, as I said, uh, Ireland is very dependent on tourism, and the big houses are part of that. I'd love to ask you just to repeat what you told me earlier, which was, you know, they have this... Um, they didn't like to be marketed in association with the famine. Uh, can you tell me what their point of view is and how, what your assessment of that is? What I did hear from many of them was this... Um, almost an apology that each one of them had a great-great-great-grandparent who had mortgaged the house and had set up soup kitchens to save the Irish. And I kept hearing this all the time, and I thought to myself, well, if there were so many of these uh, aristocrats wanting to save the Irish, why did a million die and why did a million emigrate? I think underneath it, quite rightly, they have a shame, and they should have a shame, because the reality of... of uh, the great hunger is still with us it explains a lot about Irish society today and our excesses being landless and being hungry I don't think many of them actually understand it because they didn't have to go through it 
most of us who come from, I suppose, what you would call native Irish peasant stock, you only go back three or four or five generations, and our great-great-great-great-grandparents lived through the famine. And I've always said, anybody who is Irish today comes from a nation of survivors. Those who survived, we are their descendants. And so I feel very strongly about that. It's a stain on them, yeah. And you you can't... It's like blaming modern German teenagers for Hitler. You can't do that. But uh, some of them accept it, but some of them don't. I still actually haven't seen that documentary, and I'm dying to now. Yeah, I'm so glad that he did manage to capture that world before it vanished. Um, He said that, you know, the days of the old order are over. So, Tim, I wanted to ask... Who are the elites now? Who has filled that gap? Right, well, it's a good question, right? Um, I think after um, independence in, in the mid-20th century, the most obvious group that seemed to fill the gap, I suppose, were uh, the Dublin bourgeoisie, which was a mix of, of Protestant and Catholic. And they built a kind of exclusive middle-class culture that was very centred on Dublin. Uh, but this was a dramatically lower wealth bracket than, say, the owners of big houses. Mm. So, of course, yeah. there's this stereotype, uh, which has become rather famous, the D4 stereotype. So that's named after the Dublin 4 postcode, which includes uh, wealthy areas in Dublin. So the associations I have with D4 is sort of a particular accent that's quite distinct. Um, it's it's distinct within Dublin as well. It's like a posh Dublin mm-hmm. accent. There's other other signifiers like particular clothes uh, that probably change over time, you know, but um, having your collar popped up and wearing uh, like deck shoes and that kind of which you know those boat shoes liking rugby there's a whole like thing about rugby loving rugby that kind of thing um which puts them at odds with a lot of ireland because of course the most popular sports in ireland are gaelic games and the sports of kind of working class Dublin tends to be football. Um, mm-hmm, sure. Tim, how would you describe D4? Well, it's actually hard to say, right? Because it, a bit like you describe, it's kind of partially myth and it's partially cliche and it's, it's partially reality. Um, it's a lot reality, actually, I think, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose maybe maybe the the thing that really sums it up is conspicuous consumption, proud being right. proud to be seen as richer than everybody else. Yeah, sure, and it's very much of its time, yeah. right? Uh, it, it, there's something kind of a footballer's wives about it. I actually spoke to Dr. Kieran O'Neill um, of Trinity College Dublin, who is an expert on elitism in Ireland. He wrote a book called Irish Elites in 2013. So I asked him what he thought about this whole culture of elitism in Ireland today. Thanks very much for talking to us, Kieran. So, in your opinion, is there a recognisable elite in Irish society today? The short answer to this question is yes. But one of the most interesting aspects of Irish society is the extent to which we pretend that we don't have an economic or social elite, that Ireland is somehow classless. And I mean, if you want a clean look at this, uh, take a look at the recent internal Fine Gael power struggle where two elite educated middle aged men duped it out to become uh, effectively our unelected prime minister. And there was almost no comment on the fact in media or kind of popular reaction that one of those, Simon Coveney, is a Clongos educated member of a political dynasty and the other, Leo Varadkar, uh, is a King's Hospital educated son of a medical doctor and a, a Trinity graduate. For our listeners, Clongos, or Clongos Wood College, is a private Jesuit school just outside Dublin. Its annual fees are currently set at just over €18,000 a year. Kieran, this private versus state education is really prominent in UK coverage of of politicians, uh, especially during election seasons. So, So why do you think it's almost entirely absent from the debate in Ireland? I think one of the reasons for this is that Ireland's elite is is generally politically understated and and muted, I would say. Uh, The economic and social elite typically remain within the professional classes or the financial industry and within a close-knit milieu bounded together by social, sporting and educated educational ties. So they're contained uh, and somewhat invisible. So invisible though they are, do you think that at the end of the day, the elites in this country are essentially tied to this circle of the privately educated? I think it's unquestionably true that there is a link to what we call uh, elite culture and the education system in Ireland, yes. In the Republic, the proportion of what we call fee-paying schools is about 7% of the school-going population, more or less exactly the same as it is in Canada. And our, our nearest point of reference are probably the public schools of the UK, the Harrows, the Eatons, the Winchesters. And they also account for 7% of the school-going population, but they disproportionately stock prestige professional occupations, the judiciary, the financial sector, and so on, sometimes supplying as much as 50 or 60 percent 
And the Milburn report in, in the UK uh, has made very clear this causal link uh, between elite and unequal education systems and life chances and social mobility. We've never seen a research project on that scale done on contemporary Ireland, but I can say for certain that the causal link uh, is evident historically because I've researched that myself. Uh, and I presume that a survey of any similar occupational strata across contemporary Ireland would likely show roughly the same sort of percentages. And we know that anecdotally. The bottom line really is that our fee-paying schools are cheaper only because the Irish tax system subsidises them in the form of teacher salaries to the tune of between 90 to 100 million euro a year. Now, as a citizen, I think that's totally wrong. If we want a fair education system, then the only way to achieve that is to make it illegal to charge fees and to discriminate on grounds of faith, wealth or kin. Uh, Anything less than that would be a half measure. And what about the so-called Dublin 4 phenomenon? How does that fit into the elite culture in Ireland in recent times? Um, I've always been fascinated with the D4 phenomenon, which is really a catch-all phrase we use to denote a group of people in Ireland who intentionally delineate themselves from the majority of the population by relying on social signifiers. So typically accent, uh, choice of fashion, choice of sport or leisure activity and so on. What we call D4 over the past 30 odd years has a much longer history. In fact, you'll find that accent parodied in William Thackeray's Vanity Fair from 1848, for example. And it's recognisably the accent that we would today label D4. Looking at a copy of Vanity Fair here in front of me, I'm guessing Kieran is talking about the character of Mrs. O'Dowd, who appears about 200 pages in. She's an ascendancy dame who pronounces the word Marion Square, Murian Square, that is M-U-R-Y-A-N-S-Q-U-E-R, and whose full name, she insists, is Aurelia Margareta, daughter of Fitzgerald Bursford de Berg Maloney of Glen Maloney, or Peggy. Uh, 50 years ago, my grandfather might have referred to that accent as a Rathmines or a Rathgar accent. Uh, the Gaelic revivalists bemoaned what they read as sort of an anglicised element to that accent in the late 19th century, but not too loudly since many of them spoke with one. I think a lot of people in Ireland will associate the Dublin 4 phenomenon with boom time culture. This is the years in the 1990s and the early 2000s where Ireland briefly became spectacularly uh, rich, or at least it seemed that way for a little while. Do you think the culture has kind of gone into decline since the economy crashed? Uh, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Uh, just this afternoon, I heard our new prime minister addressing a press conference with Theresa May in what I think we could easily characterise as a D4 accent. That accent isn't going anywhere. Uh, It's just changing slightly with each generation. It's interesting that um, Dr. O'Neill says that its importance is really enduring. Certainly to me, I can remember um, this sort of D4 culture stereotype having its high point during the Celtic Tiger boom years. Because Mm. people Mm -hmm. then, I can remember a moment when certain people in Dublin were proud to be identified with that stereotype, you know. They, They really embraced it and kind of played up to it. And they loved the comedic fictional character Russell Carl Kelly, who's, you know, he's... (laughs) he's a satire of it uh, but they kind of embraced him and in a way he came to define it in an interesting way he he defined it in a way that it hadn't been before right and and it is like you say it's a satire right the character's name like it's a double-barreled name in itself is a satire but yeah lots of people seem to kind of purposefully miss the satire and, and champion him as a kind of hero yeah and yeah really play up to it To me, the interesting thing was the dramatic change that I witnessed in the attitude towards that culture and people who were identified with that culture. And to me, Mm -hmm. it changed dramatically with the financial crisis. It happened quite suddenly that that lifestyle and any association with it and any kind of conspicuous consumption, that suddenly became deeply, deeply unfashionable. And instead, you had coming in this whole idea of authenticity and embracing of things that were authentic. I think it's very related to like the hipster movement, you know, which came out of Brooklyn, I suppose, in the United States. But in Ireland, what that meant was embracing things that were Irish, which really wasn't a marker of lots of people in Dublin before the crash, I must say. But in terms of who actually wields power, who are the real elites, though? Because I don't think it's Ross O'Carroll Kelly, to be honest. I completely agree with you. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's my take, right? So power, power itself isn't a problem as long as the systems to wield it are transparent. But we actually need people who can exercise power, in fact, to fix problems when 
they arise. The issue is, in Ireland, is that in recent years, power has been wielded in an extremely non-transparent and non-democratic manner. And I think this is at the core of the rage at elites. So it's the, mm. this big cliche about Ireland, right, is that we all know each other. And in many respects, it's actually true. It is a small island. It is like true. There aren't that many degrees of separation between people. And th- that can be a really nice thing. That can be a lovely thing. But when it applies to people who are elites or who are, are powerful in different ways, it becomes really dangerous. So if the, mm, sure. if the politician and the property developer and the businessman and the banker, if they all know each other, it can create these situations where their various powers combine in a closed mm. circle with no oversight without any che- checks or balances like a, a terrible captain planet like a terrible captain planet right <laughs> and and in when that happened in the financial crisis that small group of people was able to bankrupt the entire country through their decisions okay. you know and <sighs> that kind of elite power is something that poses a real continuing threat to Ireland, I would argue, because that that casual informality and resistance to oversight and resistance to openness is extremely current. It is something that is not changing. It's not the obvious people who are carrying Louis Vuitton handbags down Grafton Street that are the, are the problem. It's not the power that you see. It's the it's the power that's invisible. You know, that's, that's powerful <laughs> enough to hide itself. That's the problem. And it's not going anywhere. Right. And Naomi's latest blog on lizard people will be up any time now. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. You're quite right. You're, you're absolutely right. And something I think that's really interesting actually coming around full circle is the word that's constantly still used in the media today to describe this kind of inner circle of power uh, being gombeans. Today, the word gombean is used in Ireland to describe corrupt politicians or, you know, uh, general wheat dealer types. Uh, but back in famine times, uh, the Gombean man referred to a middleman or a moneylender, um, or just the general corrupt circle of people who profited from the extreme inequalities at the time. So there you go. Maybe things haven't changed all that much since ascendancy rule after all. We're sadly out of time, so we're going to wrap up. Indeed we are. So what are we going to talk about next week, Naomi? Okay, so next week we're going to look at Ireland and Europe. So Ireland's relationship historically with its continental neighbours and how that might evolve with Brexit. And we'll be discussing whether, as some people argue, there is an argument for Ireland leaving the bloc too. Ah, the the dreaded Irexit. Yeah, so catchy, guys. You're going to have to come up with something better. So for now, as always, thank you so much for listening. And please don't forget to rate and share the podcast. As always, it makes a huge difference to us. Um, So if you haven't done so yet, we'd really appreciate it. And if you have any questions or comments on this episode or any of our other episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You can get us on email as usual at theirishpassport at gmail.com. Yes, and we're on Twitter at... At Passport Irish. I'm useless on Twitter, unfortunately. Yeah, Timmy, you don't even have a handle. It's so sad. I don't even have a handle, but I man the Irish passport handle incognito half the time. Um, I'm, I'm actually a little bit afraid of Twitter. I don't know how to use it. But I did make, <laughs> <laughs> I did make a lovely Facebook page, um, guys. So come and check that one out instead. Tim, you're like a dad. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. 